and welcome to the June 2006 edition of the Ordinary Means Podcast. My name is Sean Nolan. I'm here at the table with Matt Bowling. Hi, Sean. And Peter Jones. Hello. And if for some strange reason the MP3 of this podcast has suddenly appeared on your hard drive or on your iPod without your knowledge, well, you can hop over to OrdinaryMeans.com and figure out what it's doing there. Well, this is June, and this is our fifth podcast. We've been doing this all of five months now. Scary but true. Uh, we've been, for the last five months, been unabashedly, unashamedly, and uncompromisingly promoting what we refer to as the ordinary means. Uh, that is the ordinary means of grace. Well, what are those? If you're just catching up with us, if you're just listening to this podcast for the first time, uh, we consider the ordinary means of grace to be God's word preached, uh, as the Bible preached, uh, the sacraments, that is baptism and the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Uh, by calling you back to the ordinary means, what we're doing is calling churches back to these very simple, very straightforward ways that God works, uh, that God has ordained to work, to build his kingdom. Now, we've been doing this for five months. We've just just brushed the surface of each of these. We've got a lot more to talk about. We've got a lot more depth that we can go into about each of these, as well as, as you saw in the last podcast, there are a lot of other areas in culture that will reflect upon, and the ordinary means will reflect upon, and how we understand those. Uh, but the question is, how can these things do that? How on earth can a guy standing up in front of a congregation delivering a pre-prepared speech change people's lives. Makes no sense. How can eating a cracker and a shot glass of vintage or non-vintage grape juice, as the case may be, how can that confer grace to a believer? How can you or I talking into the air produce history-changing results? Uh, that's the ordinary means, and those are the, that's the uh, the dichotomy that exists there, that God works through these very simple, uh, sometimes what appears to us to be foolish ways. And so we're going to try to continue to answer those questions. We're going to try to encourage uh, the Church of Jesus Christ to come back to trusting in those ways as the primary ways that God works in the lives of believers. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, we've talked about preaching a good bit over the last five months. We've touched on prayer, although, Lord willing, that's going to be the topic for July's podcast. But we really haven't given a lot of airtime to the sacraments. So that's what we want to do today. We want to start off with these strange things, sacraments. Uh, in fact, we'll understand in just a moment why they are strange. The, the word sacrament comes from the Latin sacram sacramentum, uh, which was how the Vulgate translated the word mystery. The sacraments, essentially when we talk about the sacraments being means of grace, we're talking about the mysteries of God. God has given us these strange things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, so let's start. Uh, Matt, why don't you give us, uh, give us a general definition of the sacraments? Well, I think that the, the easiest rough and ready, and we'll probably expand on this, is just that it's a, it's a visible sign of invisible grace. And that's the most simple ones. I'm not sure who originated that. Do you guys know? But it's 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 well, the, the confessions certainly use that language. We get that language from Romans, right? Right. And I think that the concept is that we've got to be careful with it a little bit. It's not as though um, we wouldn't 
uh, want to say something like, uh, if somebody takes the Lord's Supper, that they have absolutely positively received grace. This is a by faith thing. This is a um, by the working of the Holy Spirit thing. It's not an automatic thing. In fact, that's one of the reasons the Reformation happened, was because the sacraments were viewed as something that worked automatically. And so we're not saying that. So they're not, they're not a sort of magical pill. No, and we have to be careful because that word mystery, when it's used in the New Testament, it, to, our, to our understanding of it, unless you study the word and it's worth studying in the New Testament, um, is that the mystery now is gone. The mystery is revealed in Jesus Christ. He's the end of the mystery. It's now uncovered. We're, he, not a, we're not a mystery religion. We're not a Gnostic religion with secrets and all those kinds of things. It's been revealed in Jesus Christ, and, and that's what the sacraments are doing. Is they're, they're showing us the fullness of that gospel that comes by Christ. He is the prophetic word made more sure. That mm. is, he is the fulfillment of all of, all of the prophecies. Uh, in fact, Peter and I were just talking about Hebrews 1. The other day. Yeah. Oh, Hebrews is all over the sacraments. It yes. is, because Hebrews, as uh, Steve Baugh taught us um, in seminary, uh, is all about whether we ought to go back to smells and bells. Yes. And, and Hebrews is, rightly recognizes um, when it talks about that, that, you know, that you're, you've touched it. Um, that, tasted. That's, you tasted it. Yeah. Yes, tasted yeah, of the heavenly kingdom. Washed, Hebrews is washed, You know, is that, is that the, what the Hebrews missed... Um, was that they wanted to go back to something that, that they had something tangible, but it wasn't enough for them. In our day, uh, we have the opposite problem. People don't want to take the tangible that we have, except the newest generation of people professing Christianity, people even younger than the guys around the table, who want something even more tangible because the churches they've come from haven't given themselves in the tangibleness of the sacraments. And, and so they're winding up inventing new sacraments. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. they're doing things like, well, yeah, they're doing candles and prayer walks and Images. You know, labyrinths. Yeah, they're doing, they're giving people some sort of sensate appeal, but not giving them the ones that God gave them. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. This is a little bit of an aside, but if you think about it, uh, how many churches out there are starting to use video clips? And you, you wouldn't normally think video clip, oh, it's Catholic. But that is very Roman. The idea of having an image that draws you into worship, of having an icon present there. You know, even video clip, even if you're putting a video clip of VeggieTales up in the middle of a worship service to make a point, what are you doing there? Are you inventing a new sacrament? Are you going back to smells and bells? Luke, oh, what is it, Luke 16 I think it's Luke sixteen sixteen. I could be wrong on this, Matt, if you want to check me there on the computer. Um, Luke sixteen sixteen. I believe Luke says, uh, the, the prophets preached until John, but since we've preached the kingdom The law and the prophets were proclaimed go. until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But you see that distinction that Luke makes is there was this, the prophetic word up until a point, and now it's the gospel. There is a very real sense, as you were saying, Matt, the mystery is revealed. Right. The mystery is revealed, but I think that, and we'll get into this more later when we talk about frequency of sacraments and things like that, but I think, particularly the Lord's Supper, but I think that the Hebrews recognize something that we in the modern church have not recognized, which is that people need, because they're designed by God, to need something that that goes to their senses as well as their mind and their heart and their soul and that's why god has condescended just in giving us the word he's given us the word visible gospel visible and sacraments and it's meant to be there for our comfort and it amazes me that people don't use them 
Oh, yeah. What's that cartoon with the little brain guy? Uh, something in the brain? Pinky in the brain. <laughs> you remember that? Have you ever seen that cartoon? A little, I think it's yeah, like a little yeah. mouse and then there's a brain. Yeah. Okay, we are not like that brain. Yeah. We're not just simply brains walking around. Right. We are, you know, here's this term, sensual sensual beings. And God and not in the sin, not in the sinful sense, but in not, the sense no, of, not in the sense sensing. of eros, right? We're physical, yes. but yeah. we're we're physical. We're you know, touch, taste, smell. God yeah. created us that way. He created us in His image, and as you said, Matt, it's it's in our weakness. There is something about the sacraments that appeals to our weakness. It appeals to our sense of touch and taste and smell. You know, there's a sense in which the gospel preached gets through to us as the Holy Spirit works in our heart. But the sacraments get through through to us in an, in an equally powerful way by the Spirit's work. Well, and you, and you can sort of check yourself if you're listening and you're thinking about this. Could you imagine that an unbeliever could sit in your church and not partake of the Lord's Supper? Because they ought not to. If the table's fenced in your church, it, it should be according to Scripture. But could you imagine that, that, that an unbeliever might come to faith in Christ at the time of the administration of the Lord's Supper? Now, to most people sitting in a church, they'd go, no, I mean, that's something for Christians. You know, that's, a, you know, that's, not, that's not, you know, you've got to have like some sort of evangelistic appeal or something like that. Yeah. And yet, this is God's, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11? He says that, that when you do this, when you sit together, that, that Christ's death is proclaimed. Yes. And that this is gospel proclamation. This is the most gospel-centered evangelistic thing we can do. Yes. Is the sacraments. Not only are the sacraments remembrances of what Christ has done, but they are proclamations. Mm-hmm. And that's what, what you're referring to, 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says that. He says, when you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I think that's a good, I think it's an excellent question, Matt, is put yourself in the shoes of a non-believer. How would you feel if you were told you can't have this? Particularly in today's very selfish culture, you're told you can't have this. If that was me, I'd be thinking, why? Why can't I have this? You know, everything in the culture around me is saying I can have anything I want, and now I'm coming into this room and this church is saying I can't have this, Why? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think that, you know, so many people, even Christians, walk around with so much guilt. And so frequently we'll talk about baptism more a little bit later. We've been talking about the Lord's Supper some. But we we walk around with so much guilt and baptism is so frequently seen, even in our own circles, as something uh, that if it's an infant, it's cute, it's fun to watch. You know, the parents make some promises. But functionally, does it serve anything different than... um, you know what? What Peter saw going making up a wet in spot on the floor. Yeah, yeah. is it make, doing more than making a wet spot on the floor and having some parents dedicate themselves to raise the child as a Christian? And it doesn't function at all for the congregation. And yet it's corporate. And yet it's supposed to be, supposed to be. Yes, corporate. Now we've got to, for those of us who live under the Westminster standards. There's an entire catechism question about how uh, somebody in the congregation is supposed to be blessed by a baptism. But is that in the minds of people that sit in our churches? I'm not sure that it is. We well, you know, take the take that with the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, yes, we generally think it's a it's a communal thing. We call it communion. 
Um, but what do we do during the Lord's Supper? So often during the Lord's Supper, it's, I sort of go into this private prayer time mm. where I'm just thinking about myself and, and my sins, and I'm confessing them, and I make sure my heart's right with God, which is, which is absolutely proper because we need to examine ourselves as we're taking the supper. But what does Paul say? He says, as you take the loaf, you're partaking in the one body. And there he's not referring to Christ. He's referring to the local church. That as you take off that piece of bread off the loaf, you're saying, I am one with every person sitting around me in these pews. Of this group. Yep. 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 Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, this is the Belgic Confession, Article 33. And this, this really brings up this idea of weakness that we talked about. It says, we believe that our gracious God, on account of our weaknesses and infirmities, has ordained the sacraments for us, thereby to seal unto us his promises and to be pledges of the goodwill and grace of God toward us, and also to nourish and strengthen our faith, which he hath joined to the word of the gospel, the better the better to present to our senses both that which he signifies to us by his word and that which he works in us. Now, I just want to break that down a little bit. This is a gracious God appealing to us in our weaknesses, doing what? He is sealing his promises to us. When we come to the sacraments, to baptism, when we come to the Lord's Supper, there, there is something covenantal happening there. There is a promise-keeping going on there. There is a renewal of our faith there. Each time we take the Lord's Supper, we are renewing our commitment to Christ. Uh, each time that we see a baptism, what are, what are we doing? We're reminding ourselves, as you said, Matt, everybody in the congregation needs to be reminding ourselves of the vows that we have taken, that we have been washed in the same way that we are seeing this person up front being washed right now. Um, but not only is it a, a pledge, but it's also there to nourish and strengthen us. That there is assurance that comes. That there is growth, Christian growth that comes. These are the sort of things we need to, we need to draw out. Well, I think that I'm reminded um, in our congregation we do um, uh, maybe three, four minutes of teaching before we um, partake of the Lord's Supper. Yes. Uh, as part of our form of government, it's something that we, that we believe is the, the correct thing to now, do. Now, we call that the sermon, and it's a little bit longer than three or four yeah. minutes. I'm just, I'm just teasing. Um, but I, I rotate the material that's there that we look over and what I say, just to keep it fresh for people to, to keep them thinking about why is it that we've got the Lord's Supper. And one of the questions that we'll use is from the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, this is question 75, Lord's Day 28. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's um, long, but let me just read a phrase for it. It says, As certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated or given to me, and further with his crucified blood, body and shed blood, he himself feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life. That as certainly, and this is one of the reasons, you know, some churches begin sometimes for practical reasons. It's almost impossible to begin with a full loaf. Uh, we begin with a full loaf. And I say to people, particularly when I use this catechism question, you see this loaf? It's whole. This symbolizes our unity with Christ and our unity with each other. I said, but this, you do not receive this whole. You receive this broken. And, and hmm. do you doubt? Whether punishment has been met out for your sins, all you must do is as surely as this loaf is broken, Christ was broken for you. 
And the punishment of God is not on you. It was put on his son. And that's powerful gospel. And that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Because that's what the sacraments are. They are the gospel. Made visible. Made visible. Yeah. Exactly. It's gospel preaching, as I tend to say it. Yeah. I was reading, this is, a, this is a book that everyone should own if you need a systematic theology. Uh, Sheds, William T. Sheds, uh, William G. T. Sheds, uh, Dogmatic Theology. Uh, this is not a handbook on how to raise animals, how to train animals. It is not a dog training book. Uh, it is Dogmatic Theology, that, that is the theology of dogmatics, of the central uh, core of uh, Christian theology. And he has a great... Uh, great quote in here, but of course I'm not, let me being, make a, I'm not let finding me play, it. Yeah. Let me make the plug while you're doing okay. that. Um, we have been, uh, we've become convinced that we mention a lot of books to you on these podcasts and we, we never <laughs> give ourselves the opportunity other than you listening again, trying to make sure that you got the title and the author right. Rewind now. So we're going to endeavor uh, in the posts that we put on the blog that you can get to at ordinarymeans.com. If you click on the link that says blog, where Sean puts up and says uh, you've, there's a new podcast available uh, in that we're going to attempt uh, to put a reading list and so instead of giving you an overall reading list we'll give you the resources that we mentioned uh, in, a, in a broadcast and so Shed will be up there uh, the book that Sean has open that he read from the Belgic Confession which is wonderful if you're somebody who's beginning to study the Reformed Confessions uh, Joel Beakey and Sinclair Ferguson have produced a Reformed Confessions Harmonized which is a wonderful resource if you want to see the different ways a particular uh, subject of Bible teaching is dealt with in the different Reformed Confessions is a wonderful resource these guys have done a yeoman's work and it's well worth your time yes, and money. And it's not that absolutely. much either. Yeah, it's like an $18 book or something, but it's fabulous. Well, some of you have Bibles that have several different versions side by side. What this does is it puts the different confessions side by side. And it's a very, very helpful tool. Uh, here's the quote. This is, um, this is William Shedd. He says, uh, in the biblical and ecclesiastical, that is, that is the doctrine of the church, uh, in the, the church's use of a sacrament, it is a sign or symbol of a Christian ministry, uh, mystery, as we mentioned before. That word sacrament comes from the word mystery. Uh, and then he says this, he says, of the mystery of regeneration, in the case of baptism, what does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes our regeneration. And he says, of the mystery of vicarious atonement, in the case of the Lord's Supper. So what does the Lord's Supper symbolize? It symbolizes the cross. It symbolizes our atonement, that Christ took our place there on the cross, bearing the shame. Uh, he took the curse for us. Just there, I mean, just for that phrase, it's worth buying, buying the book, is he summarizes what is it about. Here you have baptism, it's about regeneration. Here you have the Lord's Supper, it's about atonement. Do we need to hear that? Do we need to hear that again and again and again? As much as we need preaching weekly, we need to have this. Now, obviously, you can only baptize when you've got... New, new believers coming in. Uh, you can only uh, have the Lord's Supper, you know, as often as you meet together. I mean, that would be that would be what they were doing in Acts chapter two. But we need that frequency. And maybe if we're not having very many baptisms, we need to ask: Is the gospel present in our churches, and are our people sharing that gospel? And that's a that's a hard question to ask. But the presence of the sacraments says something about the life of a church. Or the lack thereof. Or the lack thereof, yeah. No doubt. Yeah. 
we should probably say something about where biblically we think that, uh, well, we talked about there being two sacraments. Um, why only two? Uh, well, I've Matt, been, I've got a hangnail. Could you wash my feet right now? <laughs> yeah, there are uh, some of the listeners may not get Sean's joke, which is just that it, there are some strands um, seriously in the history of the church who have felt that foot washing is a sacrament. Um, obviously, those of a Roman Catholic persuasion would see um, there being seven sacraments. Uh, and some of these are dealt with uh, in the Reformed Confessions in different ways, and we're not going to talk a lot about that. But why, why do we pick just the two? Well, to be real honest with you, they seem to be the only ones uh, that Christ and his apostles set down for us. Um, baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only ones, as I think Peter said a little bit earlier in a, in a conversation before we got in the air, um, these are the only ones that are dealt with in the epistles. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah is that the foot washing, Jesus does it once. But uh, we're, we're not left with that uh, as a sacrament of pointing to something about Christ or about the salvation that he procures for us. Um, obviously, we learn about baptism most particularly uh, in the Great Commission. We see baptisms happen, but the order, the command to baptize um, is in the Great Commission. And obviously, in the Lord's Supper, we see Jesus transforming um, the Old Testament uh, Passover into the Lord's Supper in the upper room right before his own death. And then we see Paul uh, positively, we see them practicing it in Acts, and Paul tweaking the practice in 1 Corinthians and passing on, saying authoritatively, I'm passing on to you what Christ passed on to me. Yeah, This is should be happening, but not in the way you're doing. But, 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 but these are the things that need to change. Well, you made a point there, Matt, that this is the fulfillment of, Uh, that these sacraments are the fulfillment of of something else that's been going on. And part of the way we understand the sacraments is understand where they come from. Mm. Uh, It isn't as if Jesus sort of came on the scene and said, hey, let's do these two things. Uh, These are things that have been going on uh, for a while. I know, Peter, you were talking about that earlier. You want to talk about where where did the Lord's Supper come from? Well, I was going to say something first about foot washing. It just occurred to me, and I don't know if this connection is valid or not, but... What he says in foot washing when he's washing his disciples' feet is, you are clean, but not all of you. Now, clean, when we think of clean, we think of baptism. Hmm. So perhaps there is even a connection there, a connection between the washing of the feet in some sort of symbolic way and baptism. In other words, maybe foot washing, I'm shooting off the cuff here, so if I'm dipping into heresy, forgive me. But um, just the term, you are clean, but not all of you, referring to Judas. Peter says, Lord, don't wash my feet, you know, so on and so forth. You know the story there. Um, perhaps that is an allusion to uh, baptism in some way, perhaps. I don't know for sure. Just the thought. Well, he also says, once you are clean, you need only your feet to be washed. Yes, exactly. And so there's a, there is a... A very real way in which he is talking about regeneration. Yes, that's exactly what, that's the point I'm making, yes. So in a sense there, you could have both sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, at least in some vague way. Obviously the Lord's Supper there are more, but baptism there in some way. At least the cleansing idea, Mm -hmm. which is associated with baptism, Mm -hmm. and which baptism is part of, is there. Okay. Well, well, they've not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They haven't, but obviously they're regenerated. Yes. So, I mean, that's the point. But, it, but it's that, that's what he's saying, though, is that there is, there is this time coming. That's what he's setting them up for, is for Pentecost, when these, you know, the tongues of fire come, and mm-hmm. they, they are, for the first time, in an extraordinary way, baptized by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and you were asking about the history uh, of the Lord's preview. Supper. Where's it come from in the Old Testament? Or even just the sacraments more broadly. Yeah. yeah. Well, there are a couple of signs, uh, three possibly, um, two for sure, in the Old Testament signs of the God's covenant. And the first would be, and this is debatable in certain circles, but the tree in the garden is a sign. And then you've got Noah's flood and the rainbow. And then you've got, obviously, circumcision, which is the primary sign. And then the Lord's uh, Supper derives its origin to a degree from Passover. And the Passover was both judgment and grace. Uh, judgment for those who do not have the blood, grace for those who did. And the Lord's Supper is the exact same thing, judgment and grace. Now, how does the tree in the garden point us to the sacraments? Uh, well, the, it, this is we talked about this before we came on the air, too. Um, again, tree is the, the exact same word. Well, obviously you got Hebrew in the Old Testament, but the term for cross is just simply tree. That's that's the idea. And so that that tree, all throughout, if you follow tree imagery, and a good guy for this is James Jordan, not good for everything, but good for this. If you follow the tree imagery all the way throughout the scriptures, you start with the tree in Genesis, and you end up with a tree in Revelation, and you have trees all throughout. You know, Abraham often built altars beside trees. Uh, those ideas come up quite frequently. So the tree is a symbol of the cross, is a symbol of what Christ did, and what Christ was going to do, in the case with Adam. Um, and therefore, it, uh, and therefore, that's kind of how it is a sign and uh, he was restricted from certain things and given certain things Adam was and that tree was a sign you're restricted from this and you're given this and this is the way you keep my covenant this is the way you don't keep my covenant if you do this so So even from the garden the curse was associated with the tree yeah except in that case it was um, yeah it was an optional thing for him of his own free will to choose or not to choose and uh so yeah, that's so. Right. So later, when we when we read, you know, things like, well, Galatians uh, was it Galatians three where Paul uh, quotes the curse: "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." On a yeah. tree, you you understand that if you understand the garden. Why would you be cursed if you hang on a tree? Well, because that's where the fruit hang hung, hunged, hanged. What's my word? I'm they're I both right. Are they both right? Hung? Yeah, they're both right. Uh, well, there you go. I got it right twice. <laughs> Usually I only get it right once in, in a case like that where I have to repeat myself. Um, okay, so the tree, now the, the, the rainbow. Talk a little bit about the rainbow. Uh, the, it's important here to understand, too, with the sacraments, that this is about God coming to us. I think that's really important. It's about God promises, God's promise to us. As a Calvinist, an avowed Calvinist, and believing in the Calvinist doctrines taught, we believe that God acts. God is the one that acts in those situations. So at baptism, God acts. At um, the Lord's Supper, God acts. And when the bow was set in the thing, he was saying, this is a reminder that I will not act in this way ever again. So this is a reminder that God is, is not going to do flood the earth ever again. And it was a promise given, a seal of the promise given there. And then it was circumcision, the same thing. God's saying, I've come to you, I've cut off, or I will cut off. Well, I have cut off your sin. But it also pointed to the ultimate cutting off. And of course, the cutting off idea is prominent in the scriptures as well. To be cut off meant to be separated from God's people. And that's, of course, what Christ did on the cross to a degree. He was cut off. Outside of the camp. Outside the camp, exactly, going back to Hebrews there. Um, So he was cut off. So if you take the circumcision idea, you have this whole cutting off theme that rolls throughout, and then it it transfers in the New Testament to different baptism 
sign of regeneration, cleansing the promises of the new heart, new spirit, or the Holy Spirit given in full measure, all those promises. Um, and then also you have the Lord's Supper in which he feeds us. And the Lord's Supper has a lot has a lot more imagery in the Old Testament maybe than baptism does. And of course you got that in the, in the temple you have baptism as well and sprinkling. Well, I think too that the um, one of the things that we talked about a little bit earlier that you begin with in the garden is that God gives um, all of this physical food. Mm-hmm. He restricts them from one physical food, but he gives them all this other physical food. And that a tendency, and um, Ken Myers, we should write this down, Ken Myers has a great uh, article on the Mars Hill Audio website on uh, just a quick um, you know, introduction to Gnosticism. And one of the things that is typical of Gnosticism, and you can read anything by Peter Jones on this too, but one of the things that's typical of Gnosticism is, is either uh, an overexpression uh, of, of the body or an, an explicit denial of it. And so something that's ascetic, where there's complete denial of the body, can be as Gnostic as something that's absolutely uh, libertine. The, phys- the physical phys- body. The physical body, yeah. So, you know, the, the sexually libertine is just as Gnostic as the uh, celibate ascetic because they both <clears throat> miss the emphasis that God has on the physical body and the physical world. And we get that clearly in the garden in that he gives them tons to eat and restricts them from one um, and but yet even in the temptation there's a lot that's there in terms of um, our tendency especially in a diet conscious America is to view food wrong to view physical things wrong as inherently evil instead of the way that God would have us view them which is 1 Corinthians 15:45 talks about the fact that the physical came first God made Adam from the ground then the spiritual came second. And so in this, you know, if you're sitting there and you're listening and you're going, you know, most of my view of physical things is, is you know, that they're basically bad. You just put up with them. Here God's given us two physical signs. You know, what do I do with those? How are these good when everything else that I'm thinking, Christianly, I think is Christianly, um, the physical stuff is bad. And that's part of the reset in terms of the sacraments, is all the way from the garden, all the way through, God's about the physical being good uh, for us, made redeeming. for us, redeeming. In, in that we are just, and I think it's important that you can, you can overemphasize this and you can just say, um, you know, well, eat, drink, and be merry. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying the physical's good and that we ought to enjoy these things. It's always um, that we've got to get behind those things and see the God who's the giver of them. Yes. And through his gifts, acknowledge him. Yes. Enjoy his gifts, but don't divorce them from him. But see him through it. See the gifts. See him through the gifts. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah continually pictures heaven. He pictures redemption mm. as a feast. Yeah. And yeah. I think I had a professor in seminary um, who would continually say, "We need to. We need a better theology of feasting." And I think you need that theology of feasting to understand the Lord's Supper. Mm. Because the Lord's Supper is not only a picture of uh, a feast that the disciples once had, which was truly a feast. They had a lot of food. Um, But it's also a picture of the feast that we will celebrate with Christ. It's Christ's table. It's the Lord's Supper. It's that this is the table we will sit at not only in this life, but in its fullness 
we will sit in heaven. And in Isaiah, when he pictures this, he said, here is this table filled with the choicest of meats and the finest of wines. And you go, you know, and all the, all the teetotalers out there are going, no, 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 Isaiah, you can't say that. And yet, and you, the vegetarians, and the vegetarians, yeah, are saying you can't say that. Not it's the choice of It's fine grape juice. <laughs> it's fine. Yes, fine grape juice. Yet you look at Israel, Matt. You're making this point about the physical. Mm-hmm. The physical not being necessarily bad. God is going to redeem the physical. He's going to give us absolutely new physical bodies. Look at Israel. The nation that God created. What was the primary thing they did? They made wine. They grew grapes. To make oh, it's wine. one of the promises. Oh, yes. That your vats will overflow. That your vats will overflow. And so they made this wine, and their whole year was trusting that God would bring the rain, that God would provide good soil, that God would provide good grapes, that God would provide everything they needed to get through that uh, process to get to the final product of a fine wine. That would gladden the heart of man. That would gladden the heart of man. And thus Isaiah says, redemption, that completion is the same as that completion of the wine. The finest of wines will be there. And that's not not to say you all have to drink wine or else you're not a Christian. But it's to say that is the imagery that the Bible gives us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If we can divert for a second, if you'll allow me. I think that one of the reasons why something like um, either the meal at the Lord's table, or baptism, isn't of benefit to the Christian, is that in general, culturally, and I think we've talked about this before, we're so disconnected. Very few of us see meals as times to reconnect with people. We see meals as depersonal things, as anti-personal, as something I have to get through. So I can get back to doing what I was doing. Exactly. Yes. Instead of as a means of extending relationship. And yet, that's very much what's going on, especially at the Lord's table, is it's the extending of relationship between people and between the Lord and his people. You mean it's not just about me? Sean, I'm sorry. It's just not about you, despite your t-shirt. It's, it's not, not me. It's not all about in my, you. In my little, uh, in my little you know, prayer, prayer closet, even though there are all these people sitting around me, you know, dwelling on on my personal relationship with Christ. No, it's about the body. It's a corporate thing. Well, and there's some ways in which, as you think about that, and different churches do different things, and we're not trying to impose, you know, what we think might be good for you, but there's some good sense to... Yes, we are. <laughs> but, but there's some good sense to, you know, in some churches, you know, when the, if, uh, if the plate is passed, for example, of the elements for the Lord's Supper, that one person taking the plate, as they hand the plate to the next person says... Uh, the body of Christ given for you. Sometimes the elder, if they come up to a table, will say that to each person. Uh, but there's something about the person to person, even keeping the elder leadership over it, which I totally believe is right. Um, there's something about somehow we've got to help people connect themselves and the body as well as with the Lord when we do the Lord's Supper. And we should think about that, that it's a body thing as well as the body thing. I, you know? I have to tell you guys, I was, I was talking to somebody this week who goes to a... Um, goes to a church that won't be named at this point. And they the were unnamed church. The unnamed church. <laughs> and they were she she was describing to me how they have communion at this at this church. And the first thing she said is everyone goes forward. Okay, so it's similar to an, an Episcopal or a, a, some Lutheran churches do this way. Some Presbyterian churches do it this way, where you go forward to receive it. But but the odd thing was what they did in this church, and I'm not recommending this is that you don't take just one piece of bread, 
you take two. So you break off two pieces, and then somebody else will come up and you hand them their piece, which to me loses the effect of each person breaking off the one loaf, you know, I'm part of the one body. But I thought this was interesting is this church was trying uh, very hard to, to demonstrate this was a communal thing. Hmm. So mm-hmm. even though I wouldn't agree with how they were doing it, you know, everybody takes two pieces and hand it to somebody, um, because that seems to, it seems to break down the function of authority. Yet at the same time, it was a church struggling with the idea of how do we show people this is a communal event? Hmm. And, yeah, that's, that's and we need to struggle with that. Right. You right. Know, as much as I love the going forward, and I've, uh, and I've seen it done very well, in, in a number of churches, one thing with going forward does is it reminds you that there are other people in the building. Yes. It's not my own little privatized affair, which is really easy to do. My wife even picks on me sometimes. She says, you know what? If you want it to be a body thing, you can't sit up there and put your head down and close your eyes, Matt. And yeah. I'm like, um, you're right. And it makes it more physical. Going forward yes. makes it more physical. And I think one oh, that's of, a good point. Getting back to your Gnostic thing here, I think one of the biggest problems with our worship today, and this goes, this is especially true in um, in in Reformed and Presbyterian circles, is that it is too Gnostic. It is too Gnostic in, in its lack of understanding of how the physical life affects worship, how physical posture affects worship, how physical appearance affects worship, how movement affects worship now our charismatic friends have gone off the other end right. and they've made it gone outside the bounds of scripture and again have made it individualistic in a lot of ways and have also made it um, that that way and then you've got the the praise guys with the clapping and, and all that sort of thing that wouldn't characterize themselves as char- charismatic but they're trying to get the same effect we are physical beings and uh, we don't go forward in our church but at the same time, if we did, it, it does give you a picture and of the representative of Christ, the elder, the representative of Christ up there, giving out the elements, as a rep, not as a priest, but as a representative of the mm-hmm. priest, giving it out, people going forward to receive from the hand of Christ these things. And, it, and you've, been, you've sat through a sermon... You know, yep, get yeah. some blood rushing back through your body again. You know, so I mean, and I'm not saying, suggesting. So, are you arguing for the Lord's Supper as the aerobics, uh, <laughs> the, the aerobic <laughs> sacrament? Well, I, I'm just saying it could wake a few people up. You know, like there's oh, a, oh, I'm, I'm you know, <clears throat> sitting in a pew. You know, there's, there's a great um, there's a great download if you've gotten this. You're you're a podcaster. You're an MP3 person. There's a great MP3 that you can get off of the um, the All Saints website uh, where John Stott was the preacher for many years um, in uh, London, Birmingham wherever it is. England. England. Um, where he's talking about the nature of the church, and he does an extraordinarily good job for being a convinced Anglican of being very balanced. Uh, you probably wouldn't find anything in there that would really disturb you. But one of the things he talks about is this posture. He says, you know, we, we kneel for prayer. And he says, that's not required. You don't want to impose it on somebody. But you ought to think about it. Does posture do anything? Either going forward or kneeling or standing or w- whatever. Does it? Does it? Does it? Are we uh, enabling worship or disabling it? Well, think about your kids. What do you make your kids do when they pray? Two things: fold your hands, close your eyes. Now, do you do that because the Bible commands <laughs> that all people everywhere, when they pray, must fold their hands and close their eyes? No. And in fact, we talk to our kids. We ask our kids. We say, "Now, why do we ask you to?" to fold your hands 
so I'm not hitting my sister? (laughs) (laughs) Why do we ask you to close your eyes so I'm not distracted? There's very physical reasons for posture, and that does not make them bad. It makes them very good. Rob Rayburn out at uh, Tacoma, faithtacoma.org, he's got a series on um, posture in worship. I don't know if it's his website or not. I'm trying to think. But uh, he's got a series about the postures in worship. And the problem is, again, here, and I'm, I don't want to make anybody too upset here, but the basic problem is we are still too dispensational in our thinking, and we cut off the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about those other folk who are going to get to heaven after the seven years, you know. And I, I don't want to be too hard here, but when you cut off the Old Testament, you cut off a vast majority of your information on worship. Yeah. I mean, the New Testament, I'm not saying the New Testament has nothing to say about worship, but as far as the specific things, if you cut out the Psalms, you cut out a vast majority of what we have to say about worship. And the Psalms are filled with clapping and raising of hands in a ordered fashion done under the authority of God's word but nonetheless posture is important falling on your faces when's the last time we fell on our faces you know and we can't with our pews we bust our heads open so I mean this comes back to church architecture yeah if you could see our pews um, there's a little more than six inches I think between your knee and the and the, the hymnals no, if you're if you're right at the hymnal rack, you've you've maybe got two. <laughs> so if you have long legs, um, well, we have special seating here in our in our here in our church for you. The um, uh, I wanted to go back to something that was said er, uh, a little bit earlier, and that was the ark. You had mentioned the rainbow and the ark and the promises of God, and then we we got off onto the circumcision and the cutting off the people of God, the sprinkling of the people of God, the cleansing of the people of God. But but the ark was a cleansing. Peter tells us in uh, in First Peter three, uh, he says that the ark was a baptism. He says the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then he goes on. And this is one of those hard sayings of the New Testament. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And you read that and you go, what in the world are you talking about, Peter? But listen to what he goes on to say. He says, no, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's not talking about physical baptism, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about faith. Spirit baptism. He's talking about spirit baptism. And he, but what, but what he's saying, though, is that that ark was Christ. That ark that was as we Christ. Are in, that as we are in him, think of this hymn, Rock of Ages. Yes. That as we are in him, we are protected from the wrath of God. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we go absolutely. through that. They went through a baptism. So you've got all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 9, you've got baptism. Well, and something that I appreciated in my seminary education from Meredith Klein, and he's got some good things to say about the sacraments, and that she talks a lot about the tree, which is helpful. Not everything you might you know, enjoy, but particularly in this one is that in each sacrament, we tend to think with a modern view and, and much of the modern theology that's out that, that sacraments are, are exclusively positive things. But uh, I think that Klein helpfully distinguishes that in every sacrament, there's gospel preaching. And good gospel preaching says, repent and believe the good news, or be judged. Be judged. And so the sacraments, in that way, bring a very full-orbed gospel. If you will not take these waters of baptism and say, Christ, be merciful to me, a sinner, wash me, make me clean, you will face the flood. 
of God's wrath. It's inevitable. It will happen. There'll be another flood. Not one like Noah's day, but one that will incinerate the whole earth. Yeah, it'll be by fire. Yeah. So it, what Peter then is saying, if, this, if the, those eight persons in the ark went through a baptism, uh, they were baptized in Christ and thus were saved, they essentially didn't get wet. The ark got wet. Right. I love asking people, so how many people got baptized at the flood? Everybody. Yeah. But it was a baptism of judgment. So that, that's, and that's what Klein is saying, is that that water was safety for the people who were in the ark. Hmm. And for those who are in Christ, that water is safety. That water is cleansing. But for those who are apart from Christ, that water is the drowning of judgment. And he recreates the world, in a sense. That's what he does with the, with the flood. It's a recreation. And yep. a lot of guys will talk about the various recreations throughout, throughout the, the scriptures. And, uh, and, of course, in Christ you have the new Israel and the whole recreation of, of all of mankind, in a sense. Well, and that's what Shed, when I read from Shed earlier, that's what he says is baptism is the visual sign to remember the mystery of regeneration. Well, and that regeneration, if we think about it, is, uh, you know, is affected by the Spirit. And Ephesians talks about the fact that the Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing the inheritance. What's the inheritance? It's not just the renovation of our souls that we possess already, but the renovation of our bodies by virtue of the resurrection, the renovation of everything. Yes. By the resurrection. All of creation. All of creation. That's right. And again, Absolutely. that gets back to the physical. Absolutely. Back to the physical. We're not just going to be spirits floating around up in heaven, you know? I mean, I think some Praise of us... Praise the Lord. That's, that's kind of... You do, know. do we get wings and a harp? Or could we do an episode, a podcast, on whether or not we get wings and a harp? <laughs> we might do one in heaven sometime. But I think, I think that gets back to the fact that this, this, when we eat and drink and when we are baptized, there is a, there's a very physical element because the world God created is physical. And the new heavens and the new earth or the final heavens and the final earth, or wherever you want to go with those different, will be physical. Absolutely. It will be definitely physical. Yep. Yes. Yep. Now, you mentioned this, this, the judgment. We talked about the judgment in baptism. What's the, what's the judgment in the Lord's Supper? You're either in the body and you partake, or you're not. And if you're apart from the body, if you're not connected to the body, um, you're cut off in that sense. Go ahead. Peter Lightheart, Blessed are the Hungry, a very fascinating, uh, a good book, excellent book on the Lord's Supper. But he ties it back into the judgment at the Lord's Supper, back into the adulterous woman in the law. Remember this? This is a very odd situation where the woman had to eat, drink this certain potion. It's, it's almost magical. One of those portions you read in the law, and a man, thinks her, his hus- a man thinks his wife has committed adultery, and she drinks this stuff. Oh, it has like dust in dust, it? Dust, yeah. There's this whole yeah. dust from the temple floor, if I remember. I'm trying to get this right here in my head. But anyway, and if she drinks it and passes through unscathed... Then she's a witch. Then, then no, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That's the wrong book. <laughs> that's Oz. <laughs> and, but she passes through unscathed, then she is um, not she's guilty. Fine, right. If it eats out her insides, I mean, this is all kind of, we're trying to figure out, then she's guilty. And he says that's kind of a, a symbol. He's not saying that's a symbol of the judgment in the Lord's Supper. But he says it's, a, it's an instance where God uses drinking 
to separate righteousness from unrighteousness. And I think there are as definite, and Corinthians 11 bears this out, there's mm. definite physical judgment upon those who choose to take the Lord's Supper and are not believers. Uh, it is not just some sort of vague, well, you'll burn in hell one day. It is, I think there's definite physical judgment. Oh, yes. What does Paul say? He says, because, he says, if you eat or drink of this unworthily, you eat or drink condemnation to yourself. And because of this, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are dead. Yeah. Getting yeah. People, are, people are dying because they're not taking the Lord's Supper rightly. Rightly. And get, okay. Well, wow. in another I sense, mean, that's, people are, that's serious. Well, that's in another serious sense, business. some people are spiritually dying because they're not taking the Lord's Supper at all. They're not being, oh, yes, the other end of that. Yeah, there's another end, too. That there's people that are taking it wrong, and there are people who are not taking it because either their church doesn't take, they don't partake of it at their church, or they don't think they need it. They think that it's, that it, you know, it's a give or a take, that this isn't something necessary to Christian spirituality. But they're both fools. And back, going back to Gnosticism, I love this word. Anyway, how, <laughs> how rarely do we make a connection between a spiritual sin and a physical malady? Hmm. Now, we have to be careful with that. Obviously, we have the story of the man born blind from birth. Right, and the right. Mm. So you've got to be careful that wasn't with the that. Issue. Yeah. But the, the danger in our culture is not that we see God's judgment everywhere, but that we see God's judgment nowhere. Yeah. We, we don't see it anywhere. And so if someone, if someone is sick in the congregation or someone is dying, I'm not... Talk about some faith thing where if you have more faith, God's going to heal all your diseases. I'm not saying that, although Psalm 103 does say that. But that's just out of the point. Um, I, what I am saying, though, is that we must ask ourselves. I think this is a personal question that needs to be asked. Not necessarily one corporately. Right. Or, or that it's not elder, a discipline question yeah, by elders. But, yeah. but if, if there is, is physical malady in your life, the Puritans are great at this. If there was a famine, if there was a drought, the first thing they did was fast and ask the Lord, what have we done wrong? And and they overreacted sometimes, but we we live in a culture where there's such a disconnect between the spiritual and the physical that we assume that if we're sick, it has absolutely nothing to do with my spiritual condition, nothing whatsoever. There's no connection. That would be health and wealth gospel, and we don't want to go there. So I think there's a balance to be had there between understanding the passage about the man born blind and how yes, sometimes it's just God sovereignly using something for His glory, and understanding that there are times First Corinthians 11 make this clear where you will die. Because you said you will be dead, and Ananias and Sapphira another good example. Yeah. And obviously those were um, well. Ananias and Sapphira uh, was a case of you know the church's beginning, and God makes a point. Uh, the um, I I love it when people pray uh, in this way. So often when we pray for people who are sick, what do we pray? God heal so and so's liver. God, heal, you know, Aunt Jane's spleen, whatever, whatever part of the body that we're praying for. I, I love to hear people pray, Lord, teach Aunt Martha or Aunt Jane, whoever I mentioned, what you want to teach her through this sickness. And when you have taught her that, restore her to health. Now, that's how we need to be praying for those who are sick, again, not not getting all weird and saying that you know every time you're sick it must be something spiritual, but not ignoring the fact that we have a sovereign God who ordains even our sickness. I, I love what, what Jonathan Edwards says about sickness. He says, "Whenever I'm sick, I will think of the pains of hell." What's he saying? He says, "I'm going to use my sickness to grow spiritually." 
And so often, being sick is an excuse for Christians to complain, not an excuse to Us grow spiritually. Get crabby <laughs> when we're sick. When we're sick, never. That's never. like uh, what's his face, Mark Driscoll, talking about that hour of the that hour of the night when he's not a Christian. <laughs> the. Um, I know we've uh, we've gone over the normal time we'd like to go. Let's just let's go, let's keep going a little bit longer here t- uh, today. We've got the uh, we've definitely got a lot of material to talk about, and we'll definitely come back and talk about the sacraments again. But there are uh, a couple important questions we want to raise. Matt, you raised the ad- issue of need mm. that we need the sacraments, and obviously this is podcast is ordinary means, referring to the ordinary means of grace. Okay, baptism, Lord's Supper, their needs. Grace is conferred. How is that happening? Yeah. Well, I think that there's a couple of things that are interrelated here just in the questions. One is just uh, the first interrelationship is what is it that the Christian needs? Um, Do Christians get a start from God and then they're on their own? They basically, God gets them started, changes their hearts, and then it's them. They just run with the Christian life. And, and the view of, of sanctification or Christian growth is basically um, it's, one, it's, it's one person working, which is the Christian. And functionally, most Christians operate that way. They have a very low view uh, of the Holy Spirit and the work in the life. They have a low view of their need of grace. And the folks in my congregation has made me think a lot, has made me think about the fact that a fair number of the times in the New Testament where the word grace is used referring to sanctification, you could substitute Holy Spirit, and it makes a lot of sense. Interesting. And, and, and I think that he's right, is that the prime way that we uh, receive enablement, ability, willingness, to use those words, um, to do good works, to turn from sin, to put off sin, to put on righteousness, um, all those things... Um, are works of the Holy Spirit. They're an ongoing work of the Spirit who works within us. Okay, so if I'm, if my view of sanctification is that it's basically me, then I don't look for resources outside of me. But if my view of sanctification is that it's not just me, but that this is a Spirit-enabled, it's a Spirit-begun and a Spirit-enabled Christian life that I live, then I am out actively seeking the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm out actively seeking grace because I know I can't do it. And so my prayer life reflects that and my sacramental life reflects that or doesn't. So if I think I need help and I think God provides it, then I ask for it and I look for it. Hmm. As the one guy says that Sean and I, or I guess all of us saw a couple of months ago, um, that in terms of the word in our personal devotions, do we want to put ourselves under the waterfall of God's grace and, and let it wash over us and change us? Or, you know, do we, do, you know, how do we view these things? And this is where the sacraments fit in. Do I think I need them? Ask yourself that question if you're listening. Do I think I need the sacraments? You do. That's why God gave them to us. He gave it to us because... Yes, I mean, logic says God would not have given us these things unless we needed them. Except, in the history even of our own churches, you find, in particular, uh, baptism, we can't really control, uh, we can't control at all the frequency of it. But sometimes, even in our own Presbyterian reform circles, the frequency of the celebration of the Lord's Supper is, we could more describe it by infrequent. <laughs> yes. The infrequent celebration. The infrequency. Yes. 
Yeah. But there's it's not as to... often as you do this. It's as, exactly. It's as uh, often as you get to doing this. Right. And 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 there's good reasons to safeguard it, and we know all those arguments, and and there are good, some good things about that. But if we, what's our view of what God wants to give? What's our view of what we need, and do they match? And in that sense, here the Holy Spirit has got a gift for us uh, in the sacraments. Do we think we need that gift? And I think that's what's going on. What what kind of fool would God? I mean, I don't. Sometimes I wonder, and we we've been down this road. So I'm, I'm going to speak sharply here, friends. I I do. I understand the arguments about communion and and different things like that. But what kind of person says in their heart God has laid this before me but I don't want it I don't desire it and if you say I'm not good enough for, to come to the table then you don't understand the G-O-S-P-E-L you don't understand the gospel if you think because it's not about how good you are coming to the table it's in fact the opposite it's, exactly it's your recognition right. that you're not yes, good that a, brings you to the table it's a table for sinners the yeah. arguments sometimes against uh, infrequent communion or for infrequent communion um, and we've st- the reason I know this so thoroughly is we've moved to weekly communion here at Viewcrest, and I'm an elder here where Sean's the pastor, and we've worked through these things for several months and and tried to get a good grasp both well, biblically. It's, it's taken it's taken over a year to teach the congregation. You know, our elders spend eight months just studying the issue, studying to see. You know, how, basically the question Matt was asking is, do we need this? And the conclusion our elders came to is, yes, we need this, and the frequency with which we're to celebrate it is the frequency with which the early church understood Jesus to mean. When Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And that there's basically two ways you can understand that phrase, biblically speaking. He either means every time you celebrate the Passover. So once a year, you're going to be celebrating communion. Or he means, every time you remember me. How often do we remember Christ? Well, you go to Acts chapter 2, the early church, and immediately, what's happening? We see them devoting themselves to the apostles. Weekly, every the first day of every week, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. And so the conclusion of our elders here, and, and I understand and I and I want to encourage you if you're listening to this if you're a pastor this is something you need to be careful with with your congregation don't just simply change it Uh, lead them help them to see their need of grace Uh, because once they understand that they will desire the table Uh, they will desire to have a passion like the early church had to devote themselves continually to these things. Can we say that? If you're listening to this, you're, you're a member of a church, can you say, I devote myself continually to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer? That is the passion of the Christian. That is, that is the focus of worship. That is the ways God has called us to worship. Are we doing that? And so that's, I mean, those are the issues that we've dealt with here uh, as a church. But I think that one of the things that's good, I would say, maybe in the last 10 years of uh, the evangelical scene in America, and particularly in the, the, the small view that we have being in a, in a Presbyterian denomination, is more of a focus back upon the gospel. And that ministry ought to be, um, you know, people put it different ways, but gospel-centered is probably the best way. Christ-centered is probably the best way to put it. And there is no better way 
in my mind, to be gospel-centered than to have the visible gospel as frequent as you get together. Amen. That is the essence of what it means to be gospel-centered, is to have that visible gospel that God's given to us to convince us anew of the glory and the goodness and the grace of God in Jesus Christ, because that's what we need. The structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, I love it. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Do you want your people to walk out on Sunday morning, Pastor, with gratitude enough to obey Christ that week? Well, he's got to see grace again, and he's got to see guilt again. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we proclaim Christ in the sermon, and we give him the sacraments. So they see the grace anew. They have the gratitude to live the Christian life. And you make an important connection there that we need to have a caveat about, is that the sacrament must come with the word. Yes. You cannot, I don't think we've said that yet, you cannot separate the two. You know the the word. They don't stand alone. They, they don't operate they, they alone. Do they not. don't stand alone. They do not. And and you. But you could you can say that both directions. Is that the preaching requires the sacrament to to reach those other portions of the senses, but then the sacrament absolutely cannot come alone, for it needs the preaching to give it understanding. Yeah, the preaching of Christ in yes. particular. Yes. 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 Matt, you also mentioned earlier about the work of the Spirit, and I think that's vital to understanding our need. We need the Spirit's work in our life. We need to be sanctified. Calvin said this. He said, speaking of the sacraments, he said, all the energy of operation in the sacraments belongs to the Spirit. Hmm. And the sacraments are mere instruments which, without his agency, are vain and useless. But with it, are fraught with surprising efficacy. Isn't that a great phrase? They are fraught with surprising efficacy. It's by faith. Mm-hmm. I, that's We take hold of Christ by faith. It is a spiritual event. Just as worship is spiritual, it's, we, are, you know, we say we're singing to an audience of one. You know, when we hear the sermon, we're not hearing the preacher. We're hearing God speak to us by his spirit. So when we come to the communion table, it's no different. It's not the bread and the wine. It's not uh, the water of baptism that we're coming to. We're coming to the Spirit working through those elements. And that is how grace is conferred. One of the good things to think about, too, and this is, um, well, it's a thought. You may have to spend some time thinking about this or or investigate. But um, one of the things that's helpful in Calvin's Theology of the Sacraments that's brought out clearly uh, in Keith Matheson's book, uh, Given for You, which we'll we'll put on the the blog post, um, you may not agree with everything there, and and, uh, the three guys around the table would have different opinions about different pieces of it, but there's much valuable there uh, in Matheson's book. And one of the pieces that I found helpful reading it several years ago um, was that he talks about this work of the Spirit where we're raised up from just being in assembly with other people and raised up by the Spirit to communion with the triune God. And that there's something more than what we can see going on in communion. Um, and, and, and I think that that's very important because even, um, I haven't read this book yet, it's in my bag to read, but um, John Piper's put out a recent book called God is the Gospel. And basically his point is not that, you know, you just say God and that's the preaching of the Gospel. But what he's saying is that what the point of the Gospel to do is to restore us to that full relationship with God that was broken in the garden and that what God gives us in the Gospel is, yes, free and full forgiveness, but why? 
so we can walk again with him and we can enjoy him forever, as we say in our first catechism question. So this is what God's given us, and this is what he's giving us in the sacraments, is he's giving us himself. He's giving us relationship, fellowship, enjoyment, companionship uh, with him, which is mind-blowing that the creator would want to spend time with us and that that's what we come to at the table and what we ask the Spirit to do to raise us up to where Christ is seated that we might commune with the triune God. And that's what's going on at the Lord's Supper as we get foretaste. Uh, it's the reverse flow mm. of Revelation where God comes to dwell with man. We're, we're raised up, if you will, in the Lord's Supper by the work of the Spirit to heaven. It's a, it's a foretaste of the two being one. Amazing. Amazing thing going on. But again, that's, most of that's out of Matheson talking about Calvin and trying to reassert his helpful view of uh, the Lord's Supper. Could, could we take communion? I just, I'm hearing you. I, I'm, I just want to go take communion. I'll, I'll wait till Sunday. Well, and uh, that, that view, that may sound really mystical to you, and I, and I recognize that, which is why I commend the book to you. But uh, also read Hebrews. Read Hebrews about worship and what's going on when Christians gather to worship. They gather with an assembly that's, they join an assembly that's already singing. That's what we're talking about. We're not trying to be hyper-mystical. What we're trying to say is that the universal church is bigger than this congregation, than all the congregations that are alive in the church, but we join with the saints from all ages, and we're gathering in the worship of this one God, and that's what we do when we get around this table, is that we're eating here, but we're also eating there. And that's what the Spirit's doing. I... I agree it's weird. It sounds weird to us. Well, the very word sacrament means mystery. Yeah, yeah. And so there, there is a mystery involved. Yeah. Peter, Peter, did you want to add to that? Well, I was just going to read this from Calvin. Um, I think there's a lot. If you want to read just something great, just read Calvin's section on the means of grace and his institutes. But listen to this. This obviously is one of the great minds of the Christian church. He says, talking about the Lord's Supper, For whenever this matter is discussed, when I have tried to say all... I feel that I have as yet said little in proportion to its worth. Mm-hmm. And although my mind can think beyond what my tongue can utter, yet even my mind is conquered and overwhelmed by the greatness of the thing. Therefore, nothing remains but to break forth in wonder at this mystery, which plainly neither the mind is able to conceive nor the tongue to express. And that's just, that's just marvelous. Wow. I mean, that's just... And this is Calvin. I mean, this is a guy whose brain was bigger than... A lot of people's brain, <laughs> and he's saying, "It was funny." He says, "I've got more in my head than I can even put on paper." You know, he says, "I've got more in my mind than I, my tongue can express." But even that isn't enough. You know, it's just a great mystery. And we come to the Lord's supper, and that's what he talks about. He talks about when he talks about the Spirit's presence in the supper. He says, "I don't know how this all works out. I don't understand how we're fed. I don't understand how we eat and drink." I don't understand those things, but I know this is what the scriptures teach, and I know this is what happens. And it's amazing, and it's miraculous, and it's a mystery, but this is what occurs. And we should bow in, in, in humbleness before mm. this, this holy sacrament that Christ uh, has brought to us and given to us. You know, that, that's what makes Calvin so pastoral, is his humility. Mm. He's willing to say, I don't know. And, and I think as we come to these... Sacraments, we say, I don't know, but we have to get beyond the I don't know and say, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to do them. Right. You know, God, as I do them, would you teach me? Would you help me to understand the depth? And even if, uh, even if we, Jesus comes back before we fully understand, you know, in, the, in that day we will understand. We'll understand fully. 
another another point about the Lord's Supper that we, we need to make is the connection between the Lord's Supper and church discipline. It's a little uh, it's a little recognized um, aspect of the Lord's Supper, but when you talk about Lord's Supper, we call it communion, and you have those who are communing with us, those who are believers, members in what we call good standing. That means they're not charged with any scandalous sin. You also have non-communing people. You know, the unbeliever is not, as we talked about before, Matt, put, put yourself in the shoes of the non-believer who comes in. They're not allowed to commune. In the PCA, uh, which we, we're all members of the denomination, we're all members of, uh, we actually guard the table by saying, you must be a member in good standing of some evangelical church then you can partake. You don't have to be a member of our church, but as long as you're a member in good standing of some evangelical church. So if you've got somebody who comes in and says their church is the golf course, I believe in Jesus, but every once in a while, you know, I don't always, I don't always go to church and I'm not a member of any church. That person is not in communing fellowship with the body. Now take the reverse. You've got somebody who is in communing fellowship. They commit adultery. They're unrepentant. What do we do? We remove them from communion. We tell them you're not allowed to take the Lord's Supper. That's significant. And I think that's a significance that is lost. And I hate to come back to the frequency issue, but that's a significance that's lost if we only have communion four times a year. Well, most people, and I think it's a great point, Sean, because I think that most people, for some reason, probably because it's the form of Christian spirituality that they learned, get serious when it comes to communion time. It might be the only time for some Christians that they really think about their sins. They pass, if their church has a confession of sin, it just sort of goes over their lips, but it doesn't come from their heart. It doesn't have the real expression of who they are. But boy, if we're going to come to communion, wow, gee, I really need to deal with God. We've, well, what if that form of spirituality was, was, was every week? We raise the spiritual bar by saying, hey, this is a table for those who see their need, who see that repentance and faith is not something I do when I come to the Lord's table, but it's, a, you know, as Spurgeon said, it's not the act of an instant, it's the acquisition of a lifestyle. And are we, are we building that lifestyle even by the way that we use the sacraments? Going back to going forward, it's a lot easier to prevent the excommunicate member from taking communion if it's going forward hmm. than if you're passing the plate, just just on a very practical level. Oh, I if see. there's somebody okay. in there who, and, and there's stories about Calvin standing before the Libertines when they want to take communion, standing before the table and refusing to allow them to take communion, standing in front of it. And that's what all can do. No. And, and if you're an excommunicate member, now think about this, you, you're still going to church, you're, you're trying to show I'm not a bad person, but you know that if you walk to the front and try to take communion, that elder's going to stand in front of you you're not really gonna. You're probably not gonna take those steps. The humiliation will be too great. So I'm just saying on a practical level, not talking that going forward for communion can help out with that. If you're just passing the tray, some guy may smirk at the elder and take it anyway, knowing that he he is actually ref, we we should refuse that to well, him. So. And very practically, no matter what the frequency is in your church, parents don't miss the opportunity for the Sundays when the Lord's Supper is celebrated. Um, to use it for gospel preaching in your family with your kids. Because your kids are going to ask you, you know, why don't I get to do this? Okay, yep. And you have got the most wonderful opportunity to tell them about this Jesus who gave his body and blood for us. And um, 
and we should we shouldn't miss that. It's it's gospel preaching that extends outside of the service too. Hopefully, the um, Matt, you made a you made a point just a couple minutes ago that I'm I'm pond, sitting here pondering uh, about the reverence that comes with communion. Any church service you go to. You could have the most, the wildest, craziest pastor who's just cracking jokes left and right all through his sermon, but you get to communion, and everything all of a sudden becomes serious. Everybody gets serious. Everybody does get serious, and and now now there's a problem there, and maybe Absolutely. we can touch on that. Is this is not a funeral service? No. The 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 funeral has taken place. The ascension. Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay, when we come to this table, we're celebrating something that has been done and something that is our rejoicing. We rejoice in this table. But, but just this point, that in today's day and age where you've got to have this, this preacher who is just vibrant and cracking, you know, I, I tell my share of jokes during the sermon, because that's who I am. You know, I'm always cracking jokes. But it says something about how the whole service should be. If the center of the service is the presentation of the gospel of Christ. And communion we take seriously. Should we not take the other portions seriously? Well, I think that it gives us reference that if the rest of our service somehow isn't Christ-centered, this ought to be a restorative to make it Christ-centered. And if we're resistant to a frequent use of the sacraments, we ought to wonder, are we Christ-centered? Because it would certainly tend us towards that. It should flow both ways. Um, but I think that, yeah, that people ought to realize, as I said to my congregation last week, as we're, as we're uh, actually just after we distributed the cup and we're about to drink, I said, you know, this is a serious time. I agree. I said, but it's serious joy. It's the Psalm 2, um, rejoice with trembling. That here we are, as we've said, we're raised up before God, and everybody who comes before God is just devastated but we ought to be just <clears throat> blown away with joy that he would want to be with us. And so it's this mixed thing where we're celebrating that we have this privilege to come before the holy God who's uncreated and we're creatures and we're sinful and oh my! But that, that, we, that we gather the both of those. That it's a celebration that was painful. That it's serious joy. That it's fear with trembling. Um, and that, that it, it, uh, it's joy with trembling. And, and it... it um, it, but it, it should give us some tone that this is serious stuff we're talking about. Nobody can sort of just be a glib about the Lord's Supper. Um, and that should give us a hint that, that in all of this we're before the, the thrice holy God. Amen. Well, I think that's a that's an excellent place to close our time. Uh, I hope today that we've given you a sense of the necessity of the sacraments. Uh, I hope you've come to understand better how they are means of grace and how they are to be a regular part of uh, the Christian's worship, Christian coming uh, coming to God as God has restored us to himself, how he has regenerated us in Christ, and that our baptism is a picture of that, and that others people's, other people's baptism is a picture of that. Uh, I hope you see that he has paid the price that we might be atoned for uh, in his blood upon the cross. And that the Lord's Supper pictures that so, so beautifully. 
So uh, the Lord bless you now as you go from here to ponder these things, as we go from here to ponder these things some more, and we hope to be back with you next month. Look forward to um, your responses. If you've got comments, if you've got questions, please uh, put them up on the blog. You can also you can get to that blog by simply going to ordinarymeans.com and clicking through. Uh, this uh, this blog uh, this uh, podcast will be up for a month as well as it'll be then placed in the archives. You can listen in to any of our previous podcasts by clicking on the archive uh, button there on the ordinarymeans.com website. So then, may the Lord richly bless you as you now pursue Him through His ordinary means of grace. Mm-hmm.